This is our, I misspoke last time and said we only had three weeks. We actually have four because we have uh, we had last week. We have this week. We have two more weeks after this, so it's not three weeks. It's actually four weeks. So that should be more manageable for doing uh, for covering the material of uh, of Megillat Esther in uh, not in as much of a rush. I was concerned that we we're going to have more of a rush. So this is the second shiur, and we had finished up to the end of the contest where Esther is chosen, and we were just commenting on some of the what the Megillah highlights as the qualities of Esther that are um, that uh, are going to come in very handy for her in the further development of the story, namely that she has an insight into the psychology of people. She understands how, uh, how people process uh, information and how impressions are formed, and therefore she's very careful not to, uh, not to be active in cultivating any particular image, but to allow people to, uh, to craft their view of her in their own image. And that actually gives her a, a, an allure and a power and influence over people then normally she wouldn't be able to uh, if she came out in a very ethnic way as you know even if she tried to identify with a uh, with a certain group or a certain ethnicity that was not jewish she still would have set herself as a a part of a certain group as opposed to other groups and that would have created um, all that would have had all kinds of different associations positive for some negative for others but the fact that everybody liked her in fact the gemara says that every every na- nationality claimed her as one of their own uh, believed that she was one of their own, and that uh, that points to the same concept that I mentioned last time. That really Esther is um, someone who is able to be loved by everyone precisely because she isn't known. The mysteriousness of her identity is what allows her to charm everyone, and this ability actually to um, to step back. And uh, and to and to think strategically is what serves her very well. That's why she won the contest also, because rather than rather than uh, uh, request the her dream date with the king, she allowed the king to make the selection, or really she consulted with advisors of the king to make her selection of what the date should be like, so that it would cater to his interest, and that way she would uh, find favor in his eyes. So she's very creative and very uh, very insightful as to. Um, human psychology and she's able to uh she has the humility necessary to uh to see other people for who they are and uh it's actually a quality that uh, a lot of therapists and psychologists have to try to cultivate also because they have to keep their own personal uh, uh inclinations out of the picture so that they can hear what the um what the what the patient uh, or the client says, and actually, as a result of that, you have phenomenon which is called transference, which means that the typically um, a client or a patient in a uh, in a psychological setting ends up thinking of the therapist in a certain way, like kind of imagining them as a certain person in their life or transferring them to, to them certain qualities of people in their life, because precisely because the therapist doesn't show his or her personality very much or isn't supposed to. And so therefore the patient is allowed to imagine that they are a certain figure in, uh, you know, imagine them as the figure that they would want them to be. And actually that becomes very helpful for uh, the progress of therapy. That's an issue of that. That has to do with psychology, but I'm just saying that what Esther does is basically allow people to do that. Um, and therefore, um, is able to win their, uh, their acclaim. And then we learn, and this is right before chapter 3 in Megillat Esther, 
Um, I think last time I was able to pull it up on the screen uh, and share with everybody. Let me see if I can do that again. Uh, if I can pull up Megillat Esther uh, from Sepharia like I did last time, just in case it would make it easier for anyone to see it. But we're basically right at the uh, on the brink of getting to the third parak. We are in the we're in the second parak towards the end, and um, in the of course we know that the chapters of the Tanakh are not divided in a way that necessarily makes any sense from the perspective of the uh, of the student because they're divided up in uh, they were not divided up by Jewish authors they were divided up by um, by non Jewish. Uh, uh, non-Jewish people who had their own ideas about what the right divisions would be and they don't always mirror the physical divisions in the text where there's spaces and where there are breaks in the text. Sometimes they even go against those breaks and those spaces in the text and they can be especially confusing. Um, so let's see if I can figure out how to do this. I think it worked well last time. Ah, here we go. Now I can actually change that to having English and Hebrew for those who might find that easier. Now, here we have... Um, this is going. It pushed us back a little when I changed it to English. Okay, so uh, here we go. So this is what we're up to now. We know that it says that, that Esther was listening to Mordechai. She hides her identity, as we said. That's very strategic of her um, because it gives her a certain mysterious quality and a lot of influence. Now it says by Mahim during that time Mordechai was sitting in the gate of the king, and two people, Bigtan Vateresh, two of the Shnei two of the servants of the king had a plot against the Hashverosh that they were going to kill him. They were going to, they were going to try to uh, assassinate the king. This became known to Mordechai. Now you might say, well, why would Mordechai find out about this? Why is he running with thugs? You know, why would he know about the plan of Bikitan Viteresh against the Hashverosh? So the simple answer is that it always says that he's Yoshev B'Shar HaMelech. He's, al- he's always sitting around kind of um, in a nondescript, low-key way in the court of the king, in the gate of the king. And uh, it's stands to reason, even though it's never clearly stated um, in the text as far as I can see, but it stands to reason the assumption uh, that Mordechai was in one way or another somebody important. I don't think that Mordechai was a nobody. I think he was a known person and he's sitting Bishar HaMelech, which means he has basically security clearance of some sort. He's able to come into the gateway of the king. He's kind of like somebody who works in the White House or works in you know, the Capitol building or whatever, has certain security clearance, is a known personality, and uh, is lingering around. And of course, the rabbis in the Midrashim and in the Talmud make a big deal out of this and really emphasize that he was a, a leader and, and was well known. Um, it doesn't say that in the Megillah directly, but there's definitely a sense that he must have been somebody of note if he was hanging around in the palace of the king all, all the time and he wasn't shooed away by the guards. Also, the fact is that it seems like Shushan was, like Washington, D.C. today, mainly a place of residence for people who were government employees or who were close to the uh, to the administration in one way or another. And that's why Achashverosh made a party for the second party that he made, the seven-day party, was for the residents of Shushan because they were not just, not just because they were local, but because the people who lived in the capital city usually had some influence and were people of, of note. They were more VIPs. So in any case, Mordechai is hanging out there and he overhears this. Now, obviously, they didn't think he was listening or they didn't think he would understand or they thought they were being more secretive than they were. The rabbis say that maybe they were speaking a language that they didn't realize Mordechai understood. Whatever the case may be, they were tell- they, he found out about it and he conveys this information to Esther. Esther conveys it, B'Shem Mordechai. Now again, that seems to suggest that Mordechai is a known person. 
You know, if I just said, oh, Bob said that uh, there are some people plotting against him. Well, who's Bob? I don't know who that is. You know, who is this person? The fact that she said, B'Shem Mordechai, in the name of Mordechai, suggests that Mordechai was somebody known and was somebody who would be recognized by the king. Either way, they investigate the matter and they determine that indeed a plot was hatched against the king and, it, and, and they foil the plot, they execute Biktan Vateresh, and this is written down in the book of the records of the king. Now we know that that winds up being, we all know the story, we know that that winds up being of great significance later on, very critical that Mordechai is saved as a result of this good act that he did, and specifically that was put on record, that she insisted, that she made sure to, that he know that this information came from Mordechai, because you always want to make sure that your, uh, you know, the favors you do for other people are recorded and recognized, especially for kings, because those are the kinds of favors that you want to get repaid to you later down, later on down the line. So, we, you know, this is again, you know, a person will say, wow, how did Esther know that Haman was going to want to kill uh, Mordechai and that he would need? It doesn't work like that. A smart person realizes that you never know. You know, and that, and that, that just shows you. It's, it's again, it's a tribute to the intelligence of Esther that she recognizes you never know what will happen in the future. You never know when it might make sense. It's like, you know, putting things in writing is always a good idea. Anybody who's involved in any legal matters or is involved in buying or selling uh, home or uh, leases or any kind of legal complication, you know, put everything in writing. Why? Because, or if you have a partnership in business, put things in writing. Why? Because right now this might, might be your best friend, but tomorrow they might not be your best friend. Right now you might love the landlord or you might love your business partner. You might be on the best of terms, but tomorrow that could change. And guess what? You're going to have no way to, uh, you know, you're going to have no recourse because nothing was put in writing and you just trusted them and assumed everything would be wonderful. The smart person recognizes, put things in writing, put things down, and uh, it, it protects everyone and it's much more realistic. And that's why even a ketubah, you know, a ketubah that's given uh, at a wedding, uh, somebody once said, you know, uh, I remember I, uh, uh, somebody once told me, you know, pre, uh, pre uh, yeah, yeah, so we, uh, somebody made a comment that sounds like their job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pre, uh, look, pre, you know, prenuptial agreement. Somebody once said to me, oh, prenuptial agreements, I don't like them for, 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 for uh, you know, it's, you're already talking about divorce before you even got, before you even get, get married. Yeah, the person was talking about the halachic prenup. They were talking about prenups. This is talking about before they even had that halachic prenup. We're talking about like, uh, I was working in a Judaica store like 30 years ago when I was a teenager and, uh, uh, and um, the lady was saying, you know, she was trying to encourage people to buy the Orthodox Ketubah, not the conservative, because it had something called the Lieberman Clause, which basically has, it was like a type of halachic prenup back then that didn't end up getting accepted by the Orthodox community. They had a different way of doing it, the RCA does now, but they, the point was that she, her objection was, why are you talking about divorce at the time of the marriage? And I said to her, I said, you know, don't you realize the whole Ketubah is the same thing? The whole Ketubah is basically a prenup. I mean, it's, it's, it's mainly because right now they're madly in love, but who knows what's gonna happen tomorrow and maybe they're gonna start wanting to withhold things from each other or torment each other or refuse to support, you know, if the, if the marriage dissolves, refuse to do the right thing and all that. So that's really what a ketubah is. So a person who's, uh, you know, like the, um, 
what does it say in, in Pirkei Avot? Who's a smart person? The person who sees the future. In other words, that doesn't mean that you're a prophet. It means a person who's planning for the future and recognizes that they're not going to, uh, that things are not always going to stay the same. And therefore you should plan for eventualities that right now might seem remote, but at least you prepared. And anybody who's smart and, 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 and is practical and is disciplined will tell you that that's a, it's a very, uh, it's like people that don't take notes and then, you know, they can't remember anything that they, uh, they should have written it down, you know. Uh, that's actually me that I'm talking about. You know, uh, I will not write things down. I never write things down that I, you know, my speeches or anything like that. And then I try to remember what I speak about a few weeks ago and I can't remember. So I might be repeating the same things again and again. I'm not sure. But um, I, I was, if I had been a smart person or if I were, then I would probably say, and, and I always thanked myself for the few times that I was smart and wrote things down because I said, wow, I couldn't have ever remembered this. It's a good thing that I realized that and I wrote it down. At the time that it's fresh in your mind, you think you won't need to write it down. But it turns out that maybe you did. And so when we look at what she did here, it wasn't that she was so, she was aware of what was going to happen, obviously. The reason she did it is because she said, you never know. And it's always better to have these kinds of things written down because at the end of the day, if somebody says Mordechai is not loyal, Mordechai is this, Mordechai is that, there's any kind of problem, open up the book and it's written right there in black and white that Mordechai did something good and deserves favor, deserves some kind of, uh, uh, deserves protection, whatever it is. It's always good to have things written down because you never know how things are going to change. That is just another example of how smart Esther is because Mordechai did not tell her to do that he just told her the information she made sure it was B'Shem Mordechai and it was written down in the name of Mordechai and that you know that that was something that was uh, a part of the permanent record because she recognized that that could come in handy and you really never know that uh, and, and in fact she was 100% right it wasn't long after that that the uh, that things soured now the Megillah is operates in a um in a uh, time framework that a lot of us miss when we're reading the story, the time frame of the Megillah is actually about five years because the beginning, the party at the beginning of the Megillah, it says it's Bishnat, it's the third year, Bishnat Shalosh Lemolcho. In the third year of the reign of Achashverosh is the initial party. Esther is chosen Bishnat Sheva Lemalchuto. In the, uh, I mean, actually, I guess if you count, if you count from the initial party, so then the the period of time of the Megillah is nine years, actually, not um, not five. But um, I was counting from the uh, the ch- the choice of Esther. The choice of Esther is actually Bishnat Sheva Lamalchuto in the seventh year. So that's already starting from the third year Achashverosh. Then you have the seventh year and the um, and the decree to kill the Jews is already another five years after that. It's already It's already in the twelfth year of Achashverosh. So exactly when this particular incident of Bigtan and Teresh happened, it is not clear. It doesn't tell us. It says right after Esther is chosen, it mentions in those days this happened with Bigtan and Teresh. We don't know exactly when that is in the timeline. What we do know is that when Haman wanted to kill the Jews, it was in the 12th year of the reign of Ahasuerus, which is five years after Esther was chosen. So when you read the Megillah, you're not reading a story that actually took place over like a year or even a few months. It actually took place over almost a decade when, you know, in the, the development of the story from the banishment uh, of Vashti until the uh, killing of, um, of Haman. So the... Um, 
So this is an important thing again because it illustrates the intelligence and the strategic thinking of Esther. Not only does she understand people very well uh, in terms of their psychological uh, motives and the way that they tend to attach themselves to certain people or feel repelled by other people and she uses that to her advantage. She also knows that that people's feelings towards one another change and therefore having things in writing and, and, and making sure that, uh, because it would have been easy for anyone to deny what Mordechai had done if that, was not, if that were expedient, but when it's written down, that's it, it's the end of the story. So it's a, uh, so that was smart of her. And, and then it says, Now now we have the emergence of Haman. Now the interesting words here are, after these things, now, whenever we say acharad v'rimayla, it always makes it seem like this is something that follows logically from what preceded it. But why would Achashverosh suddenly raise Haman over everyone, place the seed of Haman over everyone, and have everyone bowing to Haman? What did this acharad v'rimayla suddenly? Uh, if you look back in the earlier chapters of the Megillah, there's no person named Haman written before, even though the rabbis do say that Memuchan in the first chapter was Haman. According to the simple read, there was definitely nobody going by the name of Haman up till now who had any role in the king's advisory council that we could see. And it listed quite a lot of people. There's all these strange sounding names in the beginning of the Megillah that signify the, um, the various advisors that he had in his inner circle and from whom he solicited uh, advice and guidance. And he said he would always ask you to aid that Vadin, people who knew the laws and knew the practices of Persia when he needed to know. He wasn't afraid to ask for advice. But all of a sudden, it says, After these things, Achashverosh elevates Haman. What is the connection between the elevation of Haman and what just happened? Why does it say, Acharad um, should say, you know, Gida, you know and, and then he, uh, he, he, he raised up Haman. Why does it say, after these things? Meaning as if there's a, a causal connection. You know, what, what's the connection? So one possibility is that this attempted assassination rattled the king. In other words, the idea that, look, I have all these advisors around me and all of these servants and all of these, uh, you know, these eunuchs, these sarisim, and all of these, you know, various players looking for influence and looking for position and trying to advance their careers and whatever. All these lobbyists, you know, we would have today or, you know, all of the interns and lobbyists and other characters that work on Capitol Hill of today back then worked in Achashverosh's court, you know, and they were all trying to see what kind of position will I get, uh, what, you know, what kind of influence can I have and, 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 and what kind of uh, impact and, and what can I receive. And so that was what was happening at this time too. And in the beginning, it seems like Achashverosh is pretty cool with that because he has tons of advisors around him. He consults with seven advisors here and 10 there. I mean, there's so many and he doesn't seem to be bothered. And then when the beauty contest idea comes from Narea Melech, just the advisors of the king, say, oh, here's a good idea. Let's have this contest and we'll choose the new queen. It doesn't seem like he has a specific individual in mind. In fact, if you look at the list of people who give him advice in the beginning of the Megillah, Memuchan is the last one on the list and the only one to speak. So he's open even to the smallest person opining on what he should do. And yet all of a sudden he concentrates all of the power in Haman. So that seems to indicate to us that he felt insecure. Now we know that the king is insecure because we talked about that in the first chapter. One of the reasons for the big party to impress everybody was that he should, it was because he's insecure. And one of the reasons why he asks for advice all the time is because he's insecure. And one of the reasons why he doesn't want to admit 
how weak he is when his wife refuses to come to the party is because he is insecure and he doesn't want to show that weakness and he doesn't know what to do. Because either way, he was sort of stuck. If he responded very harshly, it also looked weak. So this is his, um, you know, in general, his insecurity has maybe been inflamed even further because now he says, you know what, I have too much of an open door policy. There's too much access to the king. There are too many people like, like pushing their way in to the inner circle and I'd better get some more control. So I'm going to appoint a very strict deputy. His name is going to be Haman and he's going to control the flow of traffic to me. Just like today, a lot of the big rabbis, I'm not comparing them to, to, to Ahashverosh at all, but I'm saying they have these handlers that, you know, if you want to go meet this big rabbi, you have to go through the handler. And the handler is the one that decides whether you really get in or not. So, uh, so he, had, he had a handler. He basically said, my chief of staff is Haman. Speak to him first. He's the one I want you to bow to. He's the one I want you to respect. And he's basically going to be in my stead. Instead of having direct access to the king, you're going to have access to Haman. Haman will control the flow of traffic for me. Because he, I think he realized maybe that, you know, that assassination attempt, if you discovered that somebody was planning on assassinating you secretly and it was only by chance and by good fortune that they were found out and stopped, you would probably be pretty shaken up. We can imagine he was shaken up by that. He felt like, you know what? I'm not putting up enough, enough boundaries. I'm too magnanimous. I'm too friendly. I'm too close to the people. And I have too many advisors around me that probably have different agendas and different, different you know, plots could be hat, hatching all around me and I wouldn't know about it. I better put Haman in charge. He will be my bulldog. And so he puts Haman in this position. And, uh, and he, everyone has to bow to Haman. In other words, he wants Haman to be recognized as basically in his stead, being his representative. And of course, Mordechai doesn't, uh, isn't willing to, uh, to acknowledge Haman. And the question everyone asks and that bothers everyone is what's the problem with acknowledging Haman? Many people make the wrong claim based on an incorrect uh, idea, many people think that it's prohibited for a Jew to bow to a person. That's not actually true at all. There are tons of cases in the Tanakh where Jews bow to people. Avraham Avinu bows to the Chitim when they give him Maratha Machpela. There are just countless numbers of examples of people in Tanakh bowing to rulers. Even Shlomo Melech bows to his mother when she comes in the room. That's something that I'm sure your parents would really appreciate if you uh, want to show special kavod to them. Bow, you know, the uh, get up and bow down to them when they come into the room, and they you they'll really uh, they'll they'll feel very appreciated. So, um, but that's what you know. That there's nothing wrong with bowing to a person if you're showing them honor. So, what is it about Haman that Mordechai refuses to acknowledge him? And the commentaries go to uh, try to take different approaches here. The Gemara, the Talmud, and the Midrashim say that, oh, he hung an idol around his neck, and that's why Mordechai wouldn't bow to him. But it doesn't sound from the text that it has anything to do with that. It doesn't sound like it has anything to do with uh, idolatry, per se. It seems that for some reason he sees Haman as arrogating power illegitimately. And, um, and that even though the king has placed in Haman's hand a great amount of authority and has entitled him to have everyone bow to him, it seems that Mordechai is suspect of that and he sees Haman as a nefarious character with malicious intent who really is trying to usurp 
the kingdom of Ahasuerus. He doesn't think of him as somebody legitimate. He thinks of him as somebody who has his own ambitions and his own designs at heart. So what's very interesting and ironic is that Haman is a person that Ahasuerus brings into the picture. He's like, you know, because he's overwhelmed with the amount of people and various agendas that are pressuring him all the time. So he brings in Haman to manage that. But Haman himself has his own agenda and essentially tries in many ways to exploit the vulnerability that he sees in Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus's need for Haman is itself a sign of the weakness of Ahasuerus as a leader. And therefore Haman exploits that in order to advance his own ambitions, unbeknownst obviously to the king, or at least unbeknownst to him now, because it's going to become apparent to him, not at first, but later on in the story, one of the things that, uh, that Esther will do, or and some circumstances will bring out, is that Ahasuerosh is, um, you know, he will, uh, is that Haman's ambition becomes evident to Ahasuerosh later on in the story. But right now, Ahasuerus doesn't see it, but Mordechai sees it. Mordechai sees Haman as somebody trying to usurp the power of the king by having gained the trust of the king. It reminds me almost a little bit, again, Lahavdil, not to say a literal comparison, but um, that the uh, that uh, Yosef HaTzadik, when, when Yosef is... Uh, is um, is perceived by the brothers as a threat to the future of the family because their father has placed so much trust and authority in his hands and he appears to be interested in his own ambition because he's having dreams about lording over his brothers and subjugating them in the future and they think he's just having delusions of grandeur and wants to become some kind of a despot of the family when really he was having prophetic dreams but they didn't see that so they thought of him as someone they didn't want to respect because he was actually used they saw him as using their father basically having gained the good graces and the trust of their father was positioning himself to rule over the family Mordechai here is of the same sort. Mordechai is saying that um, that Haman is not a legitimate representative of Ahasuerus, but is act, has, has actually manipulated Ahasuerus into this position where he's given him this authority and power. The authority and power is on false pretenses, and really I recognize that Haman is a phony, and Haman is an evil person who is looking to undermine the king, not really to serve him. That's what I would suggest, I think, in terms of the simple reading of the text, is what what Mordechai's objection to Haman was. It wasn't an objection because, because you're not allowed to bow to people. That isn't true. You're allowed to bow. It's not, And it's not because Haman was an idol. If that were the case, then what is everyone else doing bowing to Haman? Every Jew is bowing to an idol? Of course not. What it means is that Mordechai, as one of the Avdei HaMelech, meaning that, that we see that Mordechai, who is bowing to Haman? Not everybody in the world, like in the movies about Haman. It's only, Kol Avdei HaMelech Asher Bishar HaMelech. All of the servants of the king in the gate of the king. In other words, everyone in the king's court had to bow, had to, bow to Haman as if he were the king. And Mordechai says, I am a servant only of the king, and I don't think that you're legitimate. I think that you've, you know... I heard actually Rabbi Foreman wanted to say 
that it says, Kichen that Haman claimed that the king told him that he could have everyone bow to him, but it didn't really come from the king. Meaning that Haman said to the king, don't you think it would be a good idea if like everybody bowed to me so they would know that, you know, I'm so important. And the king said, oh, okay, whatever. You know, but there was something like that, that he, he orchestrated this uh, thing. It didn't really come from the king. Could be. Either way, Mordechai seemingly is rejecting Haman because Haman is a usurper and, a, and, a, and has his own designs on the kingdom, not because of any religious reason per se, but they, the other servants of the king say to Mordechai, Why aren't you keeping the law of the king? And I said it to him day after day, what is your problem that you're, uh, that you're not bowing to Haman? And what did they do? They were tattletales. Vayagidu lehaman. They wanted to see would Mordechai prevail. Because he told them that he was a Jew. Now that's very interesting because this is the first time we see that his Jewishness comes in. He didn't, it didn't say that he said he wasn't bowing to, to Haman because he was a Jew. It sounds like that's a separate thing. They wanted to see if he would prevail because he was a Jew. Would a Jew be able to prevail against Haman? Now, what's noteworthy here to me, what stands out to me, is that it doesn't say that Haman noticed that Mordechai was not bowing to him. It says that the other servants of the king kept pressing Mordechai about his not bowing to Haman. And when he refused to do it, and he didn't listen to them when they were pressuring him to do it, then they went and told Haman to see if Mordechai would be able to stand up even to Haman. So it's very interesting. Why would they do that? Why would they tattletale on Mordechai? What do they gain out of that? So I think what, what we can conclude from this, what, what, would, what, what the text at least seems to, to suggest to, to me is that what it means, why would a person do that when they themselves don't really want to be bowing down to Haman? If you yourself don't want to do a certain thing, but you feel compelled to follow the rule, and everyone else you know, also feels compelled to follow the rule, but there's one guy who doesn't want to follow the rule, that's annoying. How come that guy is able to stand up and not follow this? No, none of us want to bow to this guy, Haman, anyway. You know, but we're doing it because that's the command that we're supposed to do it. And this one guy thinks he's, you know, he's better than us. He doesn't have to follow the rules. We're debasing ourselves by bowing to Haman. Why can't he also do it? So there's a certain resentment and jealousy uh, against Mordechai from the fact that he doesn't want to bow to Haman because deep down, I don't think anybody really wanted to bow to Haman because my impression of Haman was that he wasn't a very likable person. If you read this story, he's a, he brags all the time and he's, he's, he has the worst combination of, of, uh, you know, of arrogance and insecurity, to a very bad combination because he brags and he's so arrogant, but at the same time, he's very vulnerable and insecure and feels that he has to prove himself and all of that. So he, he's not a very likable character. Most likely nobody liked him. Um, the, the Midrashim allude to that in a, in a number of places, that he was not a very well-regarded uh, person. So probably these servants of the king didn't really want to be bowing to this, this Haman. The only thing was that they had to. And when you see somebody, you know, breaking the rules, when you feel like you have to follow the rules and they're breaking them, it's very annoying. And so they go and they want to see, will, uh, will Mordechai be able to uh, prevail 
כי הגיד להם אשר הוא יהודי, he mentions to, to them that he was a Jew. Now that also set, set, tells us something else about Mordechai. He didn't wear his Judaism on his sleeve. Just like he told Esther to downplay or hide her Judaism, he also himself wasn't, didn't identify as I am a Jew in everyone's face. He said to them that he was a Jew. He didn't make a, uh, he didn't make a big deal out of his um, Judaism in general. You could see that. He, didn't, uh, he did not emphasize it. You see that Esther's name, Esther is not, a, is not her Jewish name. Her Jewish name is Hadassah. Even though today, what more Jewish name do you get than Esther? It's a very Jewish name. Right, but, it's, uh, but at that time, Esther was not a Jewish name. Uh, Hadassah was the Jewish name, and Esther was, the, uh, Esther was, the, uh, was her Persian name. And Mordechai also is, uh, is considered to be a Persian name, not a, uh, not a Jewish name. So he tried to fit in and assimilate into the culture of, um, of, of Persia. And so the fact that he revealed that he was Jewish, you know, that gave them a, uh, a reason to believe that this principled stand he was taking against Haman was rooted in his Jewish identity. That he wasn't going to acknowledge a, uh, someone who was evil and give respect to someone who was evil and who was really um, operating contrary to the actual interests of the king because I'm a Jew and I stand up for what's right. I'm not going to do this. He identified, he, he basically tied his anti-Haman uh, stance to his Judaism because he said, as a Jew, I'm not going to subjugate myself to someone that I see as actually a, an enemy of the king and not really a representative of the king. And so when Haman saw this, now once they pointed out to Haman, of course, Haman gets very angry. But there's only one problem with Haman. And this is a problem that we saw with Achashverosh as well. That when you're faced with a situation where you have a personal uh, conflict with somebody and they have insulted you and they've offended you. So you not taking any action is letting them win. But taking an action is also letting them win. That's the irony of it. Because if you don't take action and you let it go so they've gotten away with bothering you or doing something offensive to you, breaking a rule. But if you make a big deal out of it, then what do you demonstrate? You demonstrate that it really bothered you. So it actually hands them a victory inadvertently. They hurt your feelings and you show them just how much they hurt them because you had to lash out and you had to get back at them. You had to take revenge. You know, a bully will bully because he gets a response from the victim. That's the satisfaction that the bully gets is in the response of the victim. The victim doesn't respond. On one hand, you could say, well, by not responding, you're allowing the bully to get away with it, but you also diffuse the situation. Haman doesn't feel that this can go, but once it's been pointed out and everybody notices that there's one individual who is not giving him the respect that he feels he deserves and is entitled to, he's going to do something about it. But it seemed crude and lowly in his eyes to only kill Mordechai. Because they told him the nation of Mordechai. So therefore Haman decided he wanted to destroy all of the Jews. 
Now, the reason why this is significant is because the reason why the issue shifts from a personal beef with Mordechai to a general issue with the Jewish people is because for Haman to admit that this puny little person who should really be a nobody has gotten under my skin so much by not bowing to me that I can't tolerate it and my ego is so fragile that I have to kill him because he didn't want to bow to me, that is vayivaz be'inav. That is too low. That's too pathetic to care that much about the opinion of this one person when everyone is bowing to me. Why do I have to care about that one guy who doesn't applaud me enough and doesn't respect me enough and doesn't, you know, doesn't give me the uh, honor that I, that I want? Uh, I, have, uh, I, I have thousands of people giving me the honor. Why do I need this one person? But, so he doesn't want to do that. But what he does want to do is take revenge without admitting to his own smallness and pettiness and uh, vulnerability and, uh, and insecurity. He doesn't want to admit to that, but he wants to get the satisfaction of revenge. So what does he do? He frames it as a matter of principle. He frames it as a matter of, uh, of law. Just like in the beginning of the Megillah we saw, and I, I think I mentioned that in order to save face, for Achashverosh to save face when Vashti refused to, uh, to fulfill his command, instead of just banishing her, what did he say? No, this is not personal. Well, what Mimuchan advised him to say was, don't say it's personal. Say, we have a new rule. The rule is wives must submit to the will of their husband in order for there to be peace in the kingdom. And since Vashti violated this official rule of the kingdom, she's banished. Or as many say, she was killed, but it doesn't actually say that. It just says she was banished. But the idea is that when you just single somebody out, you're making them too big. You're, you're actually, you're making the issue too personal. But if you make a decree that from now on, all wives must listen to their husbands, and since Vashti violated that rule of the kingdom that wives must listen to their husbands and she's undermining the shalom bayit of the entire nation, therefore she has to be punished. Oh, so now it has nothing to do with Achashverosh. It has nothing to do with his feelings, nothing to do with him being insulted, nothing to do with him being vulnerable or being weak. No, she's a violator of the law. And in violating the law, she's actually putting, she's jeopardizing the domestic tranquility of every household. In Persia. That's, that, that was the argument. Right? Beautiful argument. Fake, obviously. The, the, you know, the, the truth was that it was just a matter of Achashverosh orchestrated this whole party for half of a year to impress his subjects. And at the last minute, just as the party's coming to a close, the whole thing falls apart because his own wife doesn't even respect him and his own wife doesn't even uh, listen to his, to his orders. So it kind of uh, completely... Uh, uh, undermines the whole purpose of the uh, of the partying, which was to place him on a pedestal. This did the opposite of that. So, so the um, so so therefore they make it into a way they they construct the law in a way that 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 directs attention in uh, you know to a to a, some kind of a national concern instead of to him. So what does what does Haman do? Haman does the same thing. First, he does a lottery. It says, And again, this is where we get the dates from. In that first month of the 12th year of, uh, of uh, Achashverosh's reign, which is Nisan, he made a lottery. And this, and this casting of lots determined the date, the month and the day that was going to be the time to kill the Jews. Now, as I've mentioned before, I don't want to go too much into things that I've talked about a lot in the previous years. 
But this goes into the theology of Haman. And one of the philosophical and theological ideas that the Torah is very against and often contrasts people who uh, subscribe to this view of the world with the Jewish view. Um, Actually, last year, right about this time, it was actually just shy of a week I think a, a week from now, it'll be a year since I gave a class last year about mazal, the idea of luck in Judaism and, the, and the, the concept of luck in the story of Purim as an illustration of that, the idea that he felt that by make, casting lots, he was going to select a lucky time, an auspicious time where his plot would be successful. And what ended up happening in reality was he gave a year because the time came out to the 12th month, which was a whole year from when he actually cast the lots. And then during that year, a lot of other things transpired that he probably wouldn't have liked very much. It was, he just should have done it immediately. But no, it had to be done in this kind of way that made it seem cosmically predetermined, somehow cosmically destined to occur because it was revealed by these lots that he cast. And that idea of fatalism we see running throughout the Megillah later on when Mordechai has the upper hand against Haman. One second, Zeresh, the wife of Haman, says, oh, you're going to just go hang Mordechai and be done with this already. And then when Mordechai ends up prevailing and Haman does not kill Mordechai and instead Haman is forced to parade Mordechai through the streets, what does Zeresh say? Literally a few minutes later, she says, oh, if, if Mordechai is a Jew, forget it. You started to fall, you're going to collapse. She just says the, exactly the opposite of what she said before because they believed in reading these auspicious signs. Oh, you started to fall? Oh, that's it, it's finished. Now it's a disaster is going to come. And of course that demoralizes Haman and he shows up at the second party, demoralized. But the, that's the philosophy of Haman is the fatalistic philosophy. And, if you, and I think last year when we talked, or two years ago when we learned the Megillah, we talked about that a lot. And also in that class on Mazal that's also on, the, on my website, you could find that uh, shiur about Mazal from last year, which fits in with this topic too. But he goes to the king and what is the argument of, of, of Haman to Achashverosh? He doesn't say a thing about Mordechai. He doesn't say the word Mordechai. He doesn't even say the word Jew. What does he say to Achashverosh? Yeshno Amechad. There's a, to- there's a certain nation that is mixed among all of the countries that are uh, part of the empire of the king. And their rules are different and their laws are different and they don't listen to the king's laws. And therefore there is no benefit to tolerating these people. They are nothing but trouble. And if the king finds favor with this, Please write a decree, let a decree be written to destroy them. And I'll even pay for it. You know, I'll pay, for, I'll pay the money. And the king says, no, no, there's no need to, uh, to put any money. The money is given to you. Here's my ring. Do whatever you want. And, and then the, the, the scribes of the king write the decree. And that was in the first month, on the 13th of the month. Do you know what day the first month, the 13th of the month is? That's the day before Erev Pesach. So, you know, we see these dates and we don't process them in terms of our, ca- uh, our sense of the calendar. But meaning this, this decree was passed the day, it was right about to be Pesach, actually, when this whole story took place. This was leading up to Pesach. And it says it was written according to everything that Haman commanded and it was sent to every single country and it, it translated to every language and so on. And the goal was that every Jew from young to old was going to be killed, babies and women. And one day, the 13th of the 12th month of Adar, which is 
uh, the twelfth month of the year, which is the month of Adar, Ushlalam Lavoz, and all of their property could be confiscated. So that gives an incentive to the people who don't feel like killing their Jewish neighbors. Yeah, but you get to take all of their stuff. Okay, so now you're talking. Which exactly is what the Nazis did in a lot of cases, where the locals would be happy to kill the Jews and take all of their expensive property. But, and then the decree went out so that they would be ready. Um, and, and it says, The decree was given. This is the last verse of the chapter. And the king and Haman, they sat back to have a drink. Let's drink. Meanwhile, the city of Shushan was totally confounded. They didn't know what was going on. What happened? Where did this come from all of a sudden? So you see how indifferent Achashverosh is, how indifferent Haman is to the fact that they just inscribed for the massacre of a genocide of an entire people. They're sitting and having a drink over it. All to satisfy the vengeance, the lust for vengeance of Haman. But he doesn't even have, the, he's not even willing to reveal that that's the reason. Look at what he does. What is his problem? Mordechai will not follow the rule to bow to me. What does he say? Jews don't follow the rules. That's, that, that's, therefore, we should make a decree that all of this, he didn't say Jews to Achashverosh. He didn't identify them. And Achashverosh doesn't ask who they are. But Achashverosh trusts Haman so deeply and implicitly that he doesn't even question Haman when Haman gives him this argument. He doesn't even ask who it is or what or why. What, what, what laws did they break? Traffic laws, what? We don't know. It doesn't matter. He's willing to assent to it. But the point is that Haman does exactly what Memuchan did in the beginning of the, uh, of the Megillah. He takes a personal vendetta, a personal slight and offense, and rather than acknowledge it for what it is, because that would involve feeling very small and petty and feeling very uh, vulnerable and weak, he instead elevates it to the level of a principle. He says, those who do not follow the laws of the king should be killed. Oh, no, it's a, it happens to be that Mordechai is a particular example of that. But he's, not, he's only a symptom. The underlying problem is there are, is a group of people who will remain nameless, at least in the beginning, until the, until the uh, official decree gets spread around, who are not following, who in principle don't follow the laws of the king. They feel that the laws of the, they are above the law of the king. They enter to a higher authority, like the commercial used to say. And so therefore, they are unwilling. And it says that he said, He said, my principled stance is based on the fact that I'm a Jew. So Haman took that idea and he ran with it. And rather than having to, uh, to acknowledge his own weakness in the face of craving respect so much that he couldn't tolerate that one person didn't give it to him, instead of acknowledging that, he said, I can't admit that that's why I'm so upset. So I'm going to decree a law. All people who don't follow the laws of the king should be destroyed because why should we have them among us if they're not contributing to society and they are striking at the heart of our civilization with their, you know, with their rebellious behavior. That, that's it. Mordechai is just a symptom. He's not really the problem. Because, oh, Mordechai not bowing to me, that would never bother me so much. What bothers me is what it represents. 
It represents an entire nation of Jews who don't care about the laws of the king and therefore don't really care about the empire. They only care about themselves. And therefore they're a liability and they are a parasitic group that is sucking the blood of Persia. Should sound familiar because basically that is what every anti-Semite said from Paro to, uh, to, you know, to the times of the Nazis. I mean, that was exactly what they said. So what do you see? You see that Haman takes his personal vendetta, transforms it into a universal law and makes it into a national issue, not a personal issue. And that is much of what uh, we see of Haman and Achashverosh in the, uh, in the Megillah. But what, what, uh, what Esther does that makes her remarkable and what we're going to see that she does is she recognizes that this relationship between Haman and, and Achashverosh, which is basically a weird codependency that they have where both of them are vulnerable and weak in their own ways and they're feeding off of each other for their sense of security and their sense of power. Achashverosh needs Haman to make him feel secure. Haman needs Achashverosh to make him feel powerful. This relationship needs to be broken into and infiltrated in order for any change to happen. Esther recognizes that. And so Esther is eventually going to have to create some space between Haman and Achashverosh. And she's going to do that by exploiting the very same sorts of weaknesses in Achashverosh and in Haman that brought them to this point. And that's really the genius of Esther. If you look at this, the story of the Megillah, it's a, Mordechai, we're going to see in the next chapter, gives Esther the task of breaking this plot, breaking up this plot, stopping it, stopping this decree, begging the king, convincing him to rescind the decree against the Jews. But he doesn't give her any strategy as to how to do that. The strategy is all her own. And the strategy actually reveals such a profound sense of human psychology and particularly of the psychologies of Achashverosh and Haman. Of course, circumstances could have occurred that would have messed up her plan. Things could have gone wrong. But what we do see from the plan is the tremendous insight that she had and how much thought she gave to how to uh, implement her plan so that the result would be achieved. And that was from recognizing the vulnerabilities and the insecurities of both Haman and Achashverosh and playing them off of each other to put herself in a position where she had the upper hand. We're going to get into that whole piece, Bezrat Hashem, next week. We will see. We took a little longer on chapter 3 than I expected, but I think it's important to understand the personalities of Haman and Mordechai. To me, the key person, though, and I think that's why it's called Megillat Esther, is really Esther, because she's the one who formulates the plan and really shows you uh, how her ability to understand human beings was what enabled her to uh, uh, what enabled her to prevail. And we already saw from her career up till now her great understanding of human nature and human psychology. We're going to see that even more moving forward, and that's what I believe is the um, is the main message of the Megillah. Main message of Megillah is that you want to see God in the Megillah. You want to see the hand of God in the Megillah. You want to see the presence of God in the Megillah. You see it in the intelligence of the tzaddikim in the Megillah. That's where you see God in the Megillah. You see it in Esther's intelligence. The fact that, yeah, she spent three days fasting. 
to prepare because she knew that there are certain factors out of her control. But she also spent those three days preparing her strategy. And, uh, and, and, that, and what you see in the strategy, that's where you see the hand of God, that God gave intelligence and God gave insight to human beings to enable them to prevail. Whereas Haman and Achashverosh, who are the victims of their own insecurities and emotional conflict, are unable to see what hit them. It's too late already because, because Esther has already uh, you know, manipulated the situation to her advantage um, without them even realizing it. That's where you really see the hand of God. And that's why the Megillat Esther is the last of the books of the, uh, the last of the miracles of the, uh, and, and holidays really that we celebrate biblical holidays because it represents seeing God not through a miracle that is a breaking of the laws of nature, but seeing the hand of God and God's presence through the actions and the choices of human beings who are guided by his wisdom and guided by the insight of the Torah in their, uh, in their understanding of others and in, you know, in the courses of action that they adopt to bring about redemption, which is exactly what happens here. It's funny, God's name is never mentioned in the Megillah, yet there's a fast for three days. And Mordechai says a lot of religious sounding things like, oh, relief will come from the Jewish people from another source. What other source? Or why are we fasting for three days and three nights if there's no religious aspect involved? Of course there is. But the Megillah doesn't mention God's name because where you see Hashem in the Megillah is through the actions of those who are serving Hashem. And, um, and that's how you see divine presence in a non-miraculous way, in a natural way, you see the, uh, you see the divine presence expressed there. So next week, we're going to go into the details of the, uh, of the plot of how Esther actually, what Mordechai proposes to Esther, what Esther does with that proposal, how she um, implements it. And then hopefully the last week, we'll go into the mitzvot of the holiday uh, and how they come in the aftermath of the resolution of the conflict of, uh, uh, you know, of, of the foiling of the plot of Haman. But a really great example um, in secular literature for anyone interested uh, of, of a, similar, a similar kind of a story is the, is the play Othello by Shakespeare where he, he speaks about, you know, in that story... If you're familiar with it, or if, whether you are or not, if you are, you'll recognize the plot line similarity. And if you're not, then maybe you can go online and Google it and see the um, see Eclipse Notes version of it. But basically, the idea of recognizing the insecurities in people and manipulating their natural feelings of jealousy or of resentment, um, the, the, basically the darker side of their, of their personality to bring about a desired result. Now, in the case of the play Othello, the person who's manipulating people and exploiting their jealousies and their insecurities is a bad guy. And he does it for his own selfish motives um, to avenge his own, uh, you know, his own offense. Uh, whereas in, in this case, it's Esther who's doing it for a good reason. But just the idea of someone who's able to stand apart from the emotional fray and in a calculated manner, um, Perceive the emotional, the you know the the uh, you know the emotions and the frailties of the people around him or her, 
and uh, capitalize on them. In that way, it's a very it's a story that mirrors this story very much. But um, in any in any case, next week Bezrat Hashem, we'll get to that and we'll see it and um, and we'll go into the details of that plan. Uh, for the time being, I'm gonna I'm gonna record I'm gonna upload the recording and share it in the chat, and hopefully next week um, everyone can come back for the uh, for uh, installment number three. Okay. So have a great night, everyone.